Hi, welcome to Men, Mother, Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Razib Khan. He is a scientist, a writer, the co-founder of the biotech company Genrote, and the author of the Substack Unsupervised Learning with Razib Khan, where he writes about population genetics. We spoke today about various political issues relating to genetics, uh, associative mating, polygenic screening, and when it's going to become widely commercially available, uh, cognitive stratification, things that people don't want to talk about in relation to things like intelligence and race, but which are all being brought out by um, advances in genetic science. In the extended part of the episode, we also spoke about 23andMe and the social and political consequences of people having in-depth knowledge of their ancestry. That extended version of the episode can be found at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find uh, the MMM chat community, the hotback catalogue of extended episodes, and also the bonus episodes that I do fortnightly with my husband. So that's at louiseperry.substack.com. Enjoy. Razib, let's start by talking about um, biotech and your own experiences of using Reprotech. So you didn't, so am I right, you didn't do polygenic screening, but you did do something similar yeah. for at yeah. least one of your children. Yeah, so um, when you're talking about like polygenic screening, um, that's basically the analysis that you do on top of the data that you get. And so um, what we did in 2014 and... Uh, if people want to, um, people want to like read more about it, just Google uh, Razib Khan son. That should that should pull up uh, the articles about it. MIT Tech Review did a profile. Uh, so basically, um, okay, so you need the data, so you need to sequence the data. And what we did is we got some, uh, we did chorionic villi sampling, uh, get a little bit of placental tissue which had his uh, DNA in utero in the first trimester. And then we did a marker screen, I think like on 200 disease conditions. This is not polygenic screening because these are, you know, like Mendelian diseases quite often and whatnot. Um, and then um, I basically um, convinced the laboratory to give me the raw, D raw DNA and I sequenced it. Like every single position, all 3 billion positions. So, so when you say this wasn't polygenic screening, you mean you were screening for diseases that are caused by just one gene? Yeah, so it was Mendelian screening, but then I got the data. So I could have done polygenic screening. Mm. Um, I could have done it. I did it. We didn't do it because technically I did pull polygenic. Uh, this is 2014, so the educational attainment stuff I could not do yet. Uh, but there's other things that you could do on that data, and I did do that. Um, so I guess we looked at it. Uh, there was nothing, I mean, nothing objectionable. I mean, he's around, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, but he wasn't an embryo, obviously, well, because he was a fetus by that point. Um, so what happens, uh, you know, in, I think it's the same in Europe, with uh, non-invasive prenatal testing um, for, uh, you know, you do a blood draw from the mom and there's some tissue in there uh, that's broken the barrier to the fetus. And so they look for things like chromosomal abnormalities that are detectable even at really, really low, low concentrations. And so um, with that, I think the termination of the abortion will happen like in the early first trimester. Um, early to mid first trimester because I don't think they can get it early enough that it would be first trimester. Just, you know, people know. Um, so that's not like embryo screening. That's, you know, that's the that's the screen with the abortion, right? 
So that's that's a separate yeah. thing. That's, that's actually pretty ubiquitous right now. Uh, people don't talk about it, but you know. I don't know how it is in the states, but it's offered as default on the NHS that they'll t- they'll test for things like Downs. Yeah. Um, you have to opt out. Yes. Uh, for for the U.S., last I checked, which was five years ago, if you're 35 and above, health insurance automatically provides it. You don't have to request it. So it's a geriatric pregnancy. Well, okay. I suppose what you could do with polygenic screening, I mean, the way that, say, um, Simone and Malcolm Collins have done it, I've had Simone on the podcast talk about it, is to do it as part of IVF, that you screen the different embryos and then you choose the one with the most favorable scores. I suppose, theoretically, you could also screen during the first trimester. and, a, and a, Yeah, and that's, a that's just not very efficient. You didn't like the scores. Yeah, uh, no, that would be one objection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you, I'm thinking. <laughs> Let's just. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, what can you screen for now? Like, what's the state of play in 2023 in terms of what what things you could look for in a polygenic? Well, I mean, screening? you know, it depends on like the robustness that you're willing to accept. But I mean, obviously, you know, there's a whole literature in genome wide association, and uh, you know, I, and just to be you know concrete, like polygenic, obviously, there's there's no like hard cutoff of like how many genes contribute to a trait to what magnitude to say that it's polygenic but you know i think a good floor would be about 100 let's say 100 positions in the genome and then you know upwards of thousands and thousands so there's 19,000 genes uh 3 billion base pairs about like 6 million variants to give your viewers and listeners just a sense of the order of magnitude here um, and so something like educational attainment, which is basically the latent variable there is, is pretty much IQ. There's some other things in there, maybe conscientiousness and time preference. Uh, that's, you know, we're talking like marker panels of hundreds of thousands to millions uh, to get a good signal there. Height, I think, is like about like a tenth as difficult. So that's tens of thousands, maybe thousands. Um, and then there's some other things like, say, skin color. You need like 50 to 100 markers. So that's not really polygenic in most people's eyes. Um, but you could like do a pretty good prediction of, of that sort of thing. Um, and uh, like say like here's a concrete thing that because people have asked me this. Um, uh, let's say that uh, one parent has uh, a parent who has blue eyes and a parent who has brown eyes and they have brown eyes because, you know, dominant, etc. And then the other parent has blue eyes and they're like, you know, we just want a blue eyed kid. That's usually what they say, you know? Uh, well, I mean, that would be trivial to screen. That's not even polygenic. That's like two or three positions in the genome. And you can like have a good, very, very, very uh, good estimate. Um, what I will say is uh, uh, the basically um, you can be 99.9% confident um, for particular genetic profiles that the kid has blue eyes and then there's also other profiles that that also cause blue eyes but you know obviously those are not as confident but the point is you could do that right now and actually like i'm pretty sure people are doing it um i don't know for sure but i've had enough people ask me this uh that if you're doing it for disease and other things i'm sure people are doing it just because whatever you you have you have eight embryos to select from you know why, why not if you don't have any disease issues you're worried about and this is not something like uh educational attainment or intelligence where you're going to get into arguments with scientists about um, the robustness of the prediction you're making, you know, where it's like the science is real, but how guaranteed is the output, right? Uh, Because there's 
you know, there's only there's uncertainty around the estimate that you're making. And so you could say, oh, uh, so, you know, with these estimators, there's an underlying distribution that's real, the truth. And then there's the variables you're using to estimate the underlying distribution. And there's no guarantee there. Um, so you could select for a, quote, smart embryo, and it turns out to be one of the stupid ones. I don't know. You know, that could happen. And so then there's liability issues. Uh, so you have to be very careful how you communicate it with these complex traits. Will they get better? Yes. But there is a limit uh, to how um, accurate you can make the prediction because these traits are not um, some of these polygenic traits that we're talking about are not that. I mean, they're heritable. But like, I mean, let's say like IQ, like the highest estimate I've seen from anybody is 75 percent heritable, which still means 25 percent is non-heritable. That's like developmental noise and other things. And that's not trivial. Um, that's that's a big residual. So there's still going to be a noise. They can't give you a guarantee. Uh, but they can love the die, I guess. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So I, I guess, uh, I mean, that's that's how I would frame that. But where we're at right now, right, that it's not, this isn't really commercially available. I mean, people who are doing this are normally doing it because they're specialists in some way and they're and they're like like you did they're getting the genomic data and then they're doing their own analysis or using a different company or something like that so it's not like i can't currently like you know go to harley street or whatever and say i want to do polygenic screening as part of ivf no one's going to sort of provide that as a package uh i mean you know me so you know people who could do uh I mean, right, like, right. Not, but if if I didn't have no, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to say is like it's not it's not turnkey <laughs> like that. You can't. It's not like advertise, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot yeah. of money in this world. There's a lot of people doing IVF, so you can like connect yeah. the dots. Like if you want to do it, it you know if you have the money and like we're not talking like hundreds of thousands. We're talking fifty to a hundred thousand, something like that. Being I'm overestimating probably. On top of the cost of IVF. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm overestimating because I'll often they like bundle it with the IVF, I think. But I don't know all of the details, but there are services out there. They're con basically, there's concierge services and very wealthy people are already using it. They have been using it for years. So um, I think you know enough people. I mean, you know me, you know, candidly. I could put you in touch with people. Do you know what I'm saying? So um, it's already happening. But it's a very, very, uh, you know, luxury good, consumption good for, um, you know, I mean, you can imagine the type of person uh, who would do this. Uh, they're not um, they're not the rich people that inherited their money and are living off their trust fund. They're the rich people that made their money and they they don't want uh, substandard children <laughs> is the way they would. You know, I mean, they're really, very really high achieving and they want that in the next generation by any means necessary. At the risk of like inviting you to be too candid, I've I've wondered if the reason Elon I've read that Elon Musk's children have almost all been conceived through IVF, despite like the mothers being perfectly young enough to be fertile. And I've wondered if that's because he might be doing polygenic screening, and just hasn't said so publicly. No comment. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but like, but it's but it's true that this is good. This is this is probably going on right now. You're just not yet seeing ads. I mean, I can say tube. that it is. I mean, I think um, I can say it is. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'll confirm it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's illegal. Like they're not doing anything illegal. It's just uh, the optics of it, you know. So I mean, I can like I said, I can hook you up if you, you know, I know people. That's not it's not like that's not a difficult <laughs> thing. You know what I'm saying? 
How long do you think before it's completely mainstream? If I'm if I'm conservative, if I'm conservative, I'll say ten years. If I'm more liberal, I'll say five years. And that I mean, I think it's completely obvious that people who are currently spending more than even if it's even if it is 50 to 100 grand as you say at the sort of upper limit people are spending way more than that in private schools so those exact people are 100% going to spend the money on making their kids for instance smarter to begin with um i guess the big downside at the moment is that you do have to go through ivf yes, which kind horrible. of sucks so i mean the best the best yeah. way to do polygenic screening is through mate selection that's it's just cheap it hits all of the bases. Um, it's tried into technology that's been around for millions of years. So I do recommend that because people um, often ask about these sorts of things. And they're like, they're single, they're looking to get married, but they're asking about polygenic screening. And I'm just like, <laughs> I yeah, have yeah. I have a very trad solution If you want tall, smart kids, go find yourself the tallest, smartest person. Everyone else has had the same idea, unfortunately. That's the problem. Um, there was an essay by um, Scott Alexander out on, I think, when it was Slate Star Codex um, back in the day, which I look for recently, actually, and it's now on some, it's out archived on the internet. I don't quite know why. But it was about, like, ways, the evidence, it, the evidence for things that you can do to make your children more intelligent. And he goes through everything from, like, lead to iodine to, you know, like quite obscure stuff and then he gets to the end and he's just like oh you could just choose a partner who's intelligent yeah like that's your yeah so i mean the way yeah. you would do it and it's like you know the, the math is like relatively simple so think about it um let's say that you have an iq of 130 which is two standard deviations above the norm and let's say you're an upper middle class person in the west um so let's just give like a high heritability of 0.75 if you if you marry someone who is uh also 130 you know, like what the expected value of your children is going to be like 122.5 or something like that. Okay. And around that, there's a standard deviation of about like 12 points. So it could go all the way down to, you know, 70% interval could go down to like 110. Um, and then, you know, it could be, you know, considerably higher, obviously, you know, it could be higher than you. Uh, but um, the kid could. But the probability then in that case that the child would have, uh, an IQ below 100, so double digit, which is below average, is like you know, 5% or something. It's low, right? So you just, you, you're, you're weighing the die like that. And obviously, just, you know, if you want to do like 140, the expected value would be kind of in the middle. You regress back to the mean. Anyway, the point is, the math isn't that difficult. Uh, you can do it at a party or you can do it off the top of your head, you know? Um, and so. <laughs> do it at a party. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, that's the kind of thing I do. Maybe you I do, do, it I do, parties, do that. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Um, but, uh, cause you know, cause sometimes people like, you know, why is, uh, I'll give you a concrete example. When I was in high school, um, you know, I knew someone, uh, who was kind of stupid, uh, and, uh, but they were like, you know, their dad was a dentist, very prominent dentist, very well off. And, um, you know, I was like a little confused by this. Cause like I was in a class with him and I'm like, wow, um, I'm going to change his name, but it's a similar name, Dusty. He had actually a good name for a stupid person. But anyway, um, but anyway, he was like not very smart. And I'm like, well, you know, like average, but like, you know, he's pretty well off. And then like I met his parents. I was like, oh, OK, I see. I see what the because the dad was kind of a dork. Um, and he had, I think, one criteria for his once he got super successful <laughs> um, and it wasn't intelligence. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that sort of stuff happens. And 
people shouldn't be shocked. You know, you you get out what you put in. You know, oh, there's some noise, but you know. Are you trying to say that the mum was much less intelligent than the dad? Yes, and much better looking. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's that's beset the British aristocracy for many centuries, right? What? This is why they're often very like beautiful, but not necessarily I, that. Bright. I mean, because he grew up in the town. <laughs> he came back to town after dental school. And um, I mean, whatever. I was a teenager. I didn't care too much, but I was like, Dusty's dad was a dork, right? Like, I asked somebody who was like, you know, you no know, friend, friend's dad. He was like, yeah, he was a total dork. Like, I think he wanted to like prove, you know, he was very. I mean, he was like a he was like an endodontist, I think. So he'd make a lot of money, doing really well. And he wanted to show everybody, and this is how he. This is one of the ways he showed everyone, aside from the big house and everything like that. But anyway, um, I think his. I think Dusty works at like uh, he sells trailers. Anyway, most people aren't doing that though, right? Like what, like the associative mating effects, particularly second half of the 20th century onwards is super uh, pronounced and not spoken about very often. I mean, one of the things that some, some listeners and viewers are going to be thinking right now is hang on. I've read Taleb. I've read Stephen Jay Gould, whatever IQ isn't real. Well, I think Nassim. What's Yeah, I saying? think Nassim would say Nassim Taleb would say it's only real at the bottom end. Um, I think that's what his argument is. Like the whole argument is kind of. I mean, you know, he's gonna call me a fucking retard and all this stuff because he's really against like uh, IQ. But I mean, basically, uh, you know, it's re- obviously it's it's obviously important at the bottom end. Nobody denies that. His argument is at the top end. It's noisy and other things matter a lot, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can just check out the literature. That's actually highly disputed. There might be like returns to very, very high. Like the, the stylized fact is IQ stops being important after your own IQ. Like above that, like that's what people do. Like they figure out what their IQ is. They're like, <laughs> you know, you kind of need to be this smart. And then after that, it doesn't really matter. I've noticed people do that. But uh, the literature on that is actually like pretty disputable. And it could be that pe- there is literature that people who are like, you know, 160, you know, whatever, like four standard deviations, five standard deviations, uh, might actually be, uh, you know, that much smarter. The issue is the tests are really geared towards plus or minus two, which is like night, which is ninety eight, whatever, ninety six point five percent of people um, are within those intervals, and it's it wants to detect people um, within those intervals because that's you know most of the work. So they're not like tuned to the really high end, and then obviously the low end is like really obvious, it's below the threshold. Um, but anyway, you were talking about like assortative mating. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the way we do it is in the U.S. I mean, I think it's similar in England is university, et cetera. There's these signalers. And um, there is, I think, uh, I think the, the stylized fact is you don't want to be with someone whose IQ is like more than a standard deviation below or above you, which makes it difficult if you're not average, more difficult. I think this is a, it's a weird thing, but I've talked to multiple people where it's like, you know, like. You, you have to go to like a graduate school or live in a particular city or something um, if you if you want a non-trivial pool, you know. So let's say that your IQ is 130, you know, you're like in the top 2%. Um, well, I mean, by definition, you're constraining that pool of people that are going to be like you. And so maybe you want to move to San Francisco or you want to move to New York. So you see these patterns and actually there's patterns in England and um, Estonia now where the literature is pretty clear. You look at the genes for IQ, because like we can talk about the tests, you know, but you can also look at the genes. The genes for IQ do look like they're more concentrated in urban areas now. So smart people are moving 
to where other smart people are for professional reasons, but also for personal reasons, you know? And I think everyone, you know, a lot of people listening out there have probably, you know, heard people complain like they had to leave their rural area because they were such, you know, backward, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? The usual thing. So, yeah, sort of mating is happening. Um, and that's producing, you know, these stratifications. And a lot of the discussion is people at the high end, you know, at the right end of the curve, um, talking about the general population when the general population encounters like a totally different set of issues, you know? So I like I, before I got on this morning, I just like tweeted something out really quickly. Uh, in the United States, um, they're basically getting rid of uh, stringent filters on high school graduation. So they're increasing the graduation rate. So this is good for the educationists because it looks bad that lower socioeconomic status and certain minority groups don't graduate as much because they like equity. So they're like, have everyone graduate. Uh, for people like me, this doesn't affect me at all because, like, my kids are not going to be just high school graduates. I mean, it's not, you know what I'm saying? It's just not relevant. Like, that's just a nominal who. Uh, but if I was like, a working class person, that diploma is actually giving a real signal. And so what's going to happen is the diploma is going to be worthless. And so people are not going to be able to distinguish the conscientious working class graduates from the non-conscientious ones. And that's going to cause problems from them. So this is the same thing that happened when you went in Florida. Uh, they banned um, asking questions about um, have you had, have you committed a felony? And this seems like a positive thing from a social justice perspective, but it turned out uh, businesses just stopped hiring black people because they couldn't distinguish, you know? So, I mean, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it, that's irrelevant. My point is, once you get rid of any filtering mechanism, people are going to start stereotyping, you know? Um, and, uh, if you just have only a high school diploma, well, everyone, I mean, everyone has a high school diploma. That's no signal. Like when everyone has a credential, credential is worthless. Right. Um, so anyway, um, but this discussion and this like policy is happening because people who have college degrees or graduate degrees are trying to do right. And they're not thinking about it from the perspective of the person who can only graduate from high school. Like they're not college material. Which is partly a consequence of cognitive stratification, right? Because when, when you're only hanging out with people who are similarly intelligent to you, you don't really know what it's like to have 90 IQ because you just wouldn't really ever have a like, meaningful conversation with someone who did, to be honest. I think the key thing for me uh, is, uh, you know, if you have a plumber or something, although plumbers are not, some of these like uh, skilled trades, a lot of these people are really bright, especially with visual spatial. But, you know, um, how much do you talk to people? I mean, this sounds really classist, but I don't care. Um, in service, in like low paid service professions, you know, um, is it just input output and, you know, or do you like, you know. The, the stereotype of, of British journalists is having conversations with their taxi drivers because it's basically the only time that you'll ever have a conversation. I actually saw a viral tweet this morning from someone who'd had a conversation with his Uber driver about Israel. It was Matt Chorley, who writes for the Times. Um, had a conversation with his Uber driver and came away being like, wow, this guy's really anti-Semitic. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a long history of British journalists producing columns out of like the only time they ever speak to a working class person, which is when they're sitting in their taxi. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, you know, uh, the, the people that do the art, whatever. There's other people. I mean, again, I don't care. Whatever. You can cancel me for being classist. I'm not really classist. I just don't hang out with poor people. 
<laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is the point though. There's like people increasingly don't, right? So, so before there was a lot more internal, uh, both internal and external migration, like you were born in your whatever small town and you, and you had a, a, a the normal distribution of intelligence and all other traits within the town. And if, yeah, and like if you're a 130 IQ person, you might be the smartest person in your town and you don't have that much choice about who you speak to and who you marry because your, your pool is quite small. Whereas now we have people, yeah, we have the competitive stratification problem, which probably does like massively increase productivity potentially Synergy. in industries which are able to get that, yeah, yeah, get that kind of concentration. Although have you read that now um, there's massive increase in autism in the Bay Area? It's probably true in other tech areas as well. Yeah, yeah. So there, I think there's two things that are going on here. I do think assortative mating is part of the issue. Um, so that just basically means, okay, two people with uh, genes and disposition for autism or they have Asperger's. So obviously, if you pair two people like that, the distribution of outcomes, more autistic, right? The other issue is there are issue, there are um, considerations of uh, um, uh, in terms of increased diagnosis, okay? Just like the, the spread of psychiatric diagnosis and stuff like that. So that actually is probably the, the, the major reason for the rise of autism, but I think a secondary reason is assortative mating because, you know, I'm in tech, I've met engineers um, who have married other engineers, and uh, it's like totally unshocking that their children have social issues because they themselves do. And two mildly autistic people who are, who are socially functioning might end up having a more severely autistic child. Exactly, because it's a distribution. Like they could have a less autistic child or a more autistic child, or the highest probability is similar to them. Right. But that's a probability. And so you're going to, you know, as you as you structure the population and you sort by characteristics, you're going to get more variation in the population and these like, you know, pools and concentrations of more extreme characteristics that you otherwise wouldn't get in a big random mating population. One of the consequences of the fact that we, we don't really talk about this stuff publicly, like I'm going to talk about it in a podcast and I, and I, you know, I read all of this intelligence data. You will get flayed if you write about this in a sort of mainstream publication. People don't want to talk about it, right? One quote that I read years ago from an intelligence researcher was about this phenomenon of people not wanting to talk about it is, um, uh, intelligent people saying that intelligence doesn't matter is like rich people saying that money doesn't matter. Like it's, it's this incredibly powerful thing, but you're kind of not supposed to talk about it. And one of the weird effects of not talking about it is, for instance, if you look at social mobility and meritocracy, I'm thinking of the UK, but this will apply elsewhere as well. You know, one way of reading the fact that social mobility has slowed a lot in the UK compared with, say, the 1960s, Many on the left would say, well, that's because we don't really live in a meritocracy or, or we had like a brief period of meritocracy, which is now, which is now gone. And, you know, that's why you're not seeing working class people upwardly mobile in the same way. Another way of reading it is that actually meritocracy has done its work, which is that it elevated very able people who had now started marrying each other and all living in London or whatever. And actually, you've just ended up genuinely with more of a caste system as a consequence of successful meritocracy. And no one wants to talk about that, right? But that is that is a much that's an equally, if not much more plausible way of reading the data on social mobility. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that was presented at the bell curve as a possibility. Um, more recent, I mean, even after the bell curve, Ariana Huffington here in the United States, back when she was a conservative, she would write about it in Slate. Um, because, you know, and this is like the whole root of like the problem with the meritocracy in terms of the lack of self-reflection because they think, ooh, it's like hard work or luck. And 
might be just your, you know, innate tendencies to some extent. Um, and then it's also it's also confused a bit by the fact that it isn't deterministic. There are people who will fall from the tree, so to speak, apples who will fall further. So you're, you're always going to know other people that like go down and people that go up. So it's, you know, it's hard for people. Um, it's hard for people to think in statistical or probabilistic terms as opposed to just categories. So, you know, people will usually say, you know, well, I know somebody who grew up really poor and now they're an exited founder. Okay. There are people like that. Yes, of course. There's many of them actually, which is good. Um, but they're not the preponderance. And so in the United States, you see like, you know, a huge number of professors, parents were professors. Now, some of this is like talent, but a lot of it is also, um, it's a lot of it is also just like tacit cultural understanding. Um, I've talked to people who went into academia whose parents were lawyers and they didn't understand a lot of the things you had to do that are unwritten. You know, they had to learn it. And these are people whose parents were lawyers or doctors or whatever. And so the heritability is partly culturally mediated. Um, there's a lot of tacit information. One one thing, you know, one norm is like you don't talk about IQ. You know, you don't talk about innate, you know, abilities. If you are of the class that benefited from having those innate abilities, um, if you're a more regular person, actually, regular people talk about it because they see it um, and they know. Um, I will tell you guys. I mean, I think I've said this before, but when I was a kid, my parents told me. Um, you know, everyone's really smart and you got to work really hard. Um, so I didn't work. Well, I didn't, I stopped working hard when I realized it was easy, but anyway, setting that aside, um, I had a really bad attitude until I was in grade seven or seventh grade, you know? And, um, cause I just thought everyone was super lazy because they weren't doing very well. And my teacher pulled me aside. I was like, you know, what's, what's, your, I mean, you're a nice kid, but like, what's your attitude with like, especially the bottom half of the class? Um, whenever I had to do group projects, like I'd be like really impatient. And I was like, well, cause just, I'm just, I don't like lazy people. And like the teacher was just like, look, they're not lazy. Um, I mean, you know, they're just not as smart as you. And I'm like, oh no, no, I'm not that smart. I just like work hard. And she's like, no, I've seen how you work. You don't work that hard. And I was like, okay. And then she was like, so what do you, what, what is your, what do your parents do? And we, well, you know, my dad's a college professor and I was like, okay, well, she's like, what did your grandparents do? Well, my grandfather was a doctor, whatever. And she was like, do you think like maybe it could be genes? And I was like, what? And so that was kind of my, my road. My seventh grade math teacher uh, kind of like implanted that. It took me a couple of years to like look up the literature and think about it. But it did change my attitude. Um, uh, by high school, I was, I was more, I wasn't as much of a dick. I mean, I definitely like, it definitely changed my attitude because uh, then I started like, you start to notice things, okay? Like once this like framework is given to you, all of a sudden you start to notice um, that, you know, you have friends who are working extremely hard and their output is not as high as yours or, um, you know, and also another th issue is, you know, I mean, uh, this is kind of like a little off topic, but when you're like smart and the teachers know you're smart, they also grade you a little differently. Um, they have different expectations. And that is like just that was not clear to me when I just thought I worked really hard. I don't know why, but it, it's like teachers they have a sense of like what a student is capable of and they kind of like modify their teaching based on that. And I didn't realize that uh, before I, you know, did before I realized that there was like differences, you know, which is like, you know, in athletics and sports, um, I, that was also an issue because I'm not like the most athletic kid. Like I'm smaller than average. I had a friend 
who, when he hit puberty, he just got jacked and tall and it was really easy for him. And I just remember being like, I don't think he works that hard. You know, he was a close friend of mine. I was like, I just think he's like naturally like that. His dad was a logger. And so like I, I started realizing, oh, like you see this in sports all the time, but it's the same in a lot of areas of life. Yeah, sports is quite a good analogy for people who aren't familiar with the IQ research because you, you probably could come up with something like a PQ, right, physical quotient, where, you, like, like for instance, Mike Tyson is apparently really good at darts because actually you need very fine-tuned most skills to be good at boxing as well as having good cardio. Whatever. Like, and obviously, yes, you will sometimes have people who are great at cardio and bad at strength or whatever it is, but you're going to expect there to be a correlation between all those different kind of physical abilities which could give you something like a pq which is kind of analogous to um cognitive ability the thing that's kind of darkly funny about the polygenic screening about to like come onto the market in a big way is that the the, the exact class like professional classes who have been insisting at least publicly that iq doesn't measure anything meaningful i they are absolutely not going to be able to resist using this technology. So it's going to be, I mean, probably people will just function with a degree of cognitive dissonance for a while, but like, it, like the, I think the revealed preference will be that people do actually believe in, in intelligence. Let me say something, cause I've said this before, um, you know, academics in the United States are very woke and progressive. And so they hate eugenics. Um, they talk about it all the time and it's racist and all this stuff. I do point out um, who exactly is using non-invasive prenatal testing to do the screening. It's exactly these people, and there's silence. So once once they start doing it, they will not talk about it anymore. It's only when it's not a common practice that people feel they feel like they should criticize it. For example, like in vitro fertilization, you know, there are people who are Christians who, you know, thank God that their prayers were answered, that the cycle worked. Now, you know, if you read stuff about in vitro fertilization in the '80s, this is like, oh my God, this is like the devil's work, and all this stuff, like in the New York Times, you can like go back to the archives and read it. So once something becomes common, it becomes banal. You don't talk about it. If you try to point out the contradiction, people will ignore you because I've tried multiple times because I'm okay with non-invasive prenatal testing, obviously. But when people are talking about eugenics and stuff, I'm like, wait, 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 what are you doing? I mean, who are the people that's, that, that are doing this? Like, I know when academics have their children, like no one like raises their hand and says, oh yeah, I terminated Down syndrome baby, you know? But we know who must be doing this. And actually, there is evidence that higher SES people in particular, I mean, controlling for the age, controlling for the odds, um, there is evidence that higher SES people, um, social economic status people, tend to terminate more on the, on, the, on the true positive because whatever. You know, I mean, I know a friend of mine was, was in France, and um, this is like 10 years ago, but he said like the evidence was really clear that higher social status people were much more you know, particular, like they're much more like, I would say eugenical. Like, let me just say it that way. Okay. Using these technologies. And then when they got a positive test, they'd be like, yeah, we have to terminate, you know, whereas like lower socioeconomic status people, sometimes they're like, oh, whatever. It's what God said or whatever, you know, they just, it's just not as big of a deal as so they wouldn't terminate. And so that's just interesting to me that the people that like talk hyper, in a hyperventilating way about these sorts of things are always, frankly, the ones that end up using it. You know, and then they stop talking about that particular thing and they move on to the next one. It's just it's a little frustrating, but whatever it is, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about people not wanting to talk honestly about intelligence is that there are, I think, loads of ways in which cognitive stratification and and it's it's kind of un, un 
thinking effects you know the fact that basically you have people any even more so than historically anyone in a position at the top of any kind of professional hierarchy is going to be unusually intelligent and they are the people who are making decisions which affect lots of people's lives and because we don't talk about intelligence we don't talk about the fact that making we do make like less intelligent people's lives harder in loads of unnecessary ways i mean just like the basic stuff of i don't know banking or tax all these things which are actually very complex because they've been designed by intelligent people who don't realize how complex they are for everyone else i had a really transformative moment for me because i i i kind of i think you know i grew up sort of progressive and i and i imbibed the usual stuff about intelligence not being meaningful um and then i worked at one point with uh, an intellectually disabled girl and so had like extended conversations with her and i knew her iq because it was part of her sort of um report from social services and I was like, wow, your life is so different from my life. Just the things that she struggled to do, which seemed to me to be incredibly obvious, just things like getting the right bus at the right time was was sort of beyond her. And it made me, and ever since I have thought about the ways in which complex systems designed by intelligent people absolutely do not meet the needs of less intelligent people. And we can't even talk about it, let alone resolve it. Well, I think the one way that it, that it can be explained to a lot of people who are more, quote, unquote, more intelligent though, is that, this is math, uh, because math, mathematics, like, you know, formal mathematics is one area where uh, a lot of bright people, um, they run against their limit, you know? And so they see, oh, it doesn't matter how hard I try, uh, I'm not going to, you know, for example, like, I haven't taken math beyond linear algebra or multivariable calculus. Like, that was obviously kind of like the limit uh, of, like, me doing well. Um, I have a friend who got a degree in math along with a degree in, in physics, and uh, they realized they couldn't do math graduate student because they couldn't do algebraic geometry, you know? Um, this is on the high end. But I'm saying, like, no matter how smart you are in math, most people most people that are really mathematically talented in particular, they will push themselves, and then they hit the end, and they're like, what's going on here? And then they realize, oh, oh, okay, this is what it felt like for, like, most people with calculus, you know? Whereas for them, it was, it was pretty easy to do those those proofs and so i think that's one way that you can explain it um aside from the sports you know um in terms of like mathematical abilities it's a little hard sometimes um i think with the verbal stuff because people think writing is so simple and yes it is but obviously the fluency in writing varies a lot uh based on your just ability and so that's harder i think um to use as an illustration you know um because i i don't know i think people just think oh they must just like spend a lot of time at it, you know? But there are people, you know, I mean, I probably like Christopher Hitchens would probably like, you know, it seems like, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, he had to learn, it was a craft, but okay, the guy obviously, the way he talked, you could tell. This guy has like a talent for prose, not just necessarily you and the analysis, but the prose, right? But that's harder to explain. With math though, I think it's really straightforward. Like people just, you hit the wall and you're just all of a sudden, you're dragging, you know? Yeah, and yeah. for normal people, yeah. it's way lower, quote, unquote, normal people. It's way lower. Like, you know, like I have a, I mean, either, yeah, I mean, I know people who can barely graduate college, you know what I'm saying? Which for a lot of people out there is like, how's that happen? You know, but there are a lot of people like that. Like they're marginal, you know, they, they end up like majoring in something that allows them to graduate, you know, but they, it's very difficult for them. 
and our economy and culture to some extent probably privilege intelligence more than maybe any other that's existed before I mean the extent to which if you come from a modest background and you're very intelligent you can make so much more money I think than in any other culture maybe that has ever existed so like this is this is like a very valuable yeah, like trait. if you're an intelligent person if you're a very intelligent I mean look I know a lot of people who don't make as much money as they as they could but it's because they're lazy but they're also very smart yeah yeah i mean conscientiousness is the other big yeah the other big factor so i know people who are like very intelligent who are low conscientiousness and they can kind of make it in the middle class because they're just so fast you know but if they weren't if they were not that smart uh they would not be able to get a job but they can always catch themselves at the end and you know do things at the last second and that's just like their raw speed you know um, you know, I do tell these people, I'm like, look, if you just like started doing it when you're supposed to start doing it, but whatever, you know, it's not, that's not my, uh, like I'm in the middle on conscientiousness, you know, that's why I'm not a doctor. I'm in the middle. So a lot of scientists, by the way, are in the middle. Um, um, cause like they, that, that's why they didn't become a lawyer. Cause like they, the con the really high conscientious people, um, tend to follow the rules and go like in that linear sequence and in certain types of entrepreneurship and academia, that's actually not optimal because you might pick the wrong thing, you know? I'm super, super conscientious. I'm like 99th centile conscientious or something like that. But I've read that pro proper geniuses, like the Isaac Newton types who are, who are unusual, um, they tend to have quite unique personality profiles. They are obviously very intelligent, but they're, they're often very disagreeable, for instance, because you kind of have to be disagreeable in order to say outrageous things in your field. A stylized fact is like yeah, in the United States, at least doctors uh, are high IQ people who are, who are pretty conscientious and also pretty agreeable. Yeah, that's me. I, I mean, I went to medical school. I'm a medical school dropout. So there, but for the grace of God. <laughs> I mean, if you have to work with patients, I mean, surgeons might be the exception here, but if you have to work with patients and stuff like that, you can't be, you know. So I'm like, uh, I'm actually doing a posting a podcast this week. Um, I did with a personality psychologist. So um, it's like really interesting, all the different things. But um, so I'm very disagreeable, very high openness, uh, and then very extroverted, not neurotic at all, and moderate conscientiousness. So that's, you know, I mean, I think most people can guess most of that. I'm really high in everything. That's my, that's my unusual personality profile. Well, there's sex. So there's sex differences. Um. This is like spoken of when I talk to psychologists. There's sex difference, like to say neuroticism. Like women are much more neurotic and much more agreeable. Post puberty, that's what's really interesting, and that's what suggests that it is that it is like a, a, an innate difference. Well, I, I suppose you could look at it both ways, but like, but when you test a ten year old kids who've had plenty of socialization already, that you don't see these differences, and then once they go through puberty, you see them. If you have like an all male group um, privately, um, aside from talking about sports and sex. Um, another thing is like, uh, the, uh, uh, the ability to talk, tolerate a range of opinion in my experience is much greater when there are women in the room. Usually with women in the room, I have to like talk over them and just tell them to shut up, which most men will not do candidly because women are like, it's because of your disagreeableness receive. <laughs> don't be, yeah. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. That's problematic. I'm like, I don't give a shit what you say, you know? And like the other guys are like, whoa. But like when it's just guys candidly, that's, that does not usually happen. Um, because like you're not performing in front of a woman and like we don't like care, you know, like who cares, you know. But so you can be in a room and like some guys like far right and some guys like a communist. And, like you just like argue it out and like whatever, you know, and then you like have a beer. And it's like a totally different dynamic and uh, something I like kind of um, figured out only as an adult because 
know, I grew up in the normal world where it's like everything is mixed gender, you know? Um, but then like there are certain circumstances where it's just only guys and you start to see, oh, this is actually quite different. And I'm sure with women, it's there's other things going on there. I don't know because I'm not, you know, I don't identify as a woman, you know? <laughs> um, I, I just think that's something that's not talked enough about. Uh, uh, people don't talk enough about it. I mean, I know you talk about it and like uh, Mary Harrington talks about it um, just in terms of how the the influx of women into professions, for example, has changed things a lot. And a lot of it just comes down to personality and how women operate in groups versus how men operate in groups. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. So like, you know, concretely, like in academia, there were these like really, really harsh, like unpleasant individuals that were just tolerated and accepted because that's how they are. And now these people are not tolerated. They either have to just like not talk at all or they're not promoted or they're not hired, whatever. And that's because... Um, a lot of women, especially younger women, will not tolerate that. And that's kind of good. The bad part of it is, though, are we going to get an Isaac? I mean, because Isaac Newton was probably one of those people from what I've, like, read about his personality. Uh, these are, like, geniuses that will just not tolerate. They don't, you know, operate with normal niceties. Uh, they have no patience for you if you're not at their level. And I've interacted with these people because I was in academia, like, 10 years ago, and I mean, if, if, if these guys, if the, because they're almost all guys, not always, but almost all these guys, they're mostly guys. There's some women like this too. But th if they respect you, they will give you a time of day and they're actually like very, um, I mean, it's enriching to interact with them. But if they don't respect you, they don't know who you are. Uh, it's, it's really, really unpleasant. And I get that, but you know, we just, we have trade-offs in our society, you know? I might yet write a book on this, like the, the, the feminization of public life hypothesis. So my suspicion is that a lot of social changes and political changes that we've seen over the last, say, 70 years are to do with the mass influx of middle-class women into the professions that originally were dominated by men. And you would expect there to be, like, you know, we all know, this. going back to what you said earlier, a lot of people, including smart people, are not good at realising that average differences between groups does not determine individual profiles right I mean the thing is they often can you say like look you know most tall parents are going to have taller kids occasionally they, they have a shorter kid they can kind of wrap their heads around it but it's more difficult when it comes to personality and, and intelligence and stuff but anyway um we know that there are significant differences between men and women in terms of um personality you would expect that to play out in institutions that go from being entirely male to being largely female and that probably does explain a lot of what we've seen culturally like and yeah for good and ill I think that there are good and bad effects one one effect for instance like in policing for this is police policing has actually become a lot less violent you wouldn't know this from listening to BLM or whatever but the the kind of routine violence that used to be um dealt out by police officers really is like really has gone and in in things like like the the Met Police in London is like a third woman now it's a lot like completely historically unprecedented numbers of women in policing and probably I, I my guess is that the drop in violence is because women are much less likely to be violent in that kind of context which well, it changes the whole culture the culture of expectations too i mean that's that's the key that i, th I think one thing um the one thing i would i would say is like that i understand now is you know with the initial influx of women into the professions where they're allowed in uh even encouraged to some extent um these are still like male normative institutions and cultures and so when they're like 10 to yeah. 20 to 25 yeah. percent these are basically, they are women, they're biological females, but they accept and accede to the cultural standards and norms that were already pre-existent. And they're probably quite masculine themselves as well. Yeah, there might be self-selection. What happens though is as the fraction increases, all of a sudden, 
they can change the culture. And that's what happens. And that's what I've seen happen. Um, in academia, you can see it in a very, very, it's almost like in a controlled experiment way because different disciplines have different proportions of women at different times. So for example, there's still fields of engineering. Those departments are still actually quite masculine in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, that's just how it is. But then like there's other, other fields like economics and philosophy, I think, where there's now enough women where it's starting to change. So economists are harsh. We're harsh. You know, people like Larry Summers, that was typical. That's changing. And a lot of it, I mean, people have talked about it explicitly. A lot of it is like the influx of women and the change of how women feel, how acceptable it is to, you know, get up as a senior academic and basically humiliate a graduate student, you know, at a conference. You know, and it's like, okay, like, and I, mean, I didn't even say this. It's just like, like most guys are not going to cry. Okay. But like, that's a serious, that's happened and people don't want that to happen. So you got to change the norms. Like there are women who will just, you know, I don't know. It's, a, it's weird. I'm just like, why do you cry? You know what I'm saying? Like when that happens, it's just like, whoa, it's like everyone kind of freaks out because guys don't do that. So we don't have like any, like our reflexes, like, whoa, what, what happened? And you know, anyway. But like, so economics and also like law schools in the U.S., um, again, like it's not explicitly said, but the uh, intense like uh, verbal jousting that used to happen is like, way, way discouraged now only within the last five years. And I think it's because women finally put their foot down and were just like, look, why do you have to be such a dick? You know, but, hey, I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just how it is. I think it's probably good and bad, just like depending on the context. I want to ask about another area where people are really hypocritical, right? So we've talked about intelligence. Can we talk also about uh, genetic sequencing and race? Because again, the fashionable view, particularly in academia on kind of progressive circles, is that race isn't real. It's all incredibly superficial and sketchy and yada, yada, yada. Oh, and also here's my 23andMe, which tells me exactly <laughs> where I'm from. And again, people seem to just kind of live with that. They don't, it, the, the cognitive dissonance kind of goes on set, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, this is complicated. I mean, this is like the kind of thing like... Uh... You know, some like communist scientists will clip and white supremacists, you know, but uh... we can put it behind. We can put it behind the paywall. <laughs> the episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>